So in his last years as president, according to historian David McCullough, nothing gave Harry Truman more satisfaction than returning the oldest building in the nation's capital to its original glory. This is after World War II, don't worry. The White House for Truman was a symbol, it was a symbol of the nation's health, its prosperity, its strength. In his eyes, it symbolized the dignity, right? the importance, the gravity of the office he held. But after years and years of neglect, Truman believed that the White House was in need of a long overdue upgrade. And so his desire was to see the White House so thoroughly restored that he could be assured long, long after he was gone, that it would be a permanent symbol for many generations to come. You know, if there ever was a time for God's people when his blessings felt permanent, it was under Solomon's reign, the Solomon who we have been studying for the past few weeks. We heard last week that he was this, he was this king with, with unparalleled wisdom who would act decisively and even mercifully. He was the king who had peace with the neighboring nations. Things were so good under his reign. We're told that Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. In his own words, Solomon said that he had neither adversary nor misfortune. Right? You see, God's people, under Solomon's kingship, they were now settled in the land promised to them. They were enjoying God's blessings. They were living under the reign. They were being led by a king who were told, loved the Lord. Right? This was Israel's dream come true. Right, as we stand back and look at these early days in Solomon's kingdom, the impression that we get is that everything for Israel was, was permanent. It was secure. It was complete. Or at least it was heading towards completion. Right, and let's just remember for a brief moment where God's people had been. We can look back at Abraham, for example, who never, who never gained in his life. He never gained full possession of the land that he was promised. Right? We know at the end of his life, he only owned the cave that his wife was buried in. And then there's those 400 years, 400 years Israel spent in Egypt as slaves. Then the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Then come the tumultuous years of the judges. And then all the conflict, the war, the infighting that marked the kingships of Saul and David. And now, and now for the first time, it's beginning to look like all God's promises are, are coming together, that they are in the possession of the people. Think about it. The land is secure. There is peace around them. And there's this wise, there's this promising king who's on the throne. What was needed, though, the missing piece, right, was a symbol, right, a permanent house for the people to see. 
right, for the people to come to and be reminded of God's presence and his faithfulness to his covenant promise to make his dwelling among them. And so Solomon needed a building project. He needed to build a house for the Lord, a house that would endure for generations, this symbol that the people could always look to and be reminded that God fulfills his promises. So this morning as we hear about the structure and the design, the beauty of the house Solomon built for the Lord, our question is this. What is it that can secure God's permanent presence in your life? In our world where nothing feels permanent, is it possible for us, is it truly possible for us to be secure in the one thing that truly matters? So our passage this morning comes from a selection of verses out of 1 Kings chapter 6. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall, and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Around the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, 
in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. And in the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bol, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its parts, according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So if I were to compare myself to Solomon, and I know that sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but hear me out. If I were to compare myself to Solomon, I'd, I'd have to say we took somewhat different approaches to the projects assigned to us. Right, it wasn't unusual for one of my parents to have to make a late night run to Walmart, anyone there this week, right, to gather the necessary supplies for a project that was due in less than 12 hours. Solomon, on the other hand, students, pay attention, took a wiser approach. Right, before the construction of the, te- of the temple began, we're told about Solomon's preparations, that he negotiated with this king, Hiram of Tyre, to provide all the timber of cedar in Cyprus that would be needed. Right? He gathered a massive labor force. He appointed 3,300 officers just to oversee the work. He did all of that before he gave the order to prepare the stones that would serve as the foundation of the house. See, here's what we see. We see this king, we see Solomon, that he undertook the construction of the temple with the care and the attention and the diligence that God deserves. It's really the care, the attention, the diligence that's required if we are to be molded and shaped by God. And so friends, just consider, how would, you, how would you describe, how would you characterize your approach to growing spiritually mature, right? Are you putting things off, right? Squeezing in just a, a little Bible reading and prayer when there's nothing left to do. And the trouble there is we always know there's more to do. And it's because your life is incredibly busy, Right? It's because you have responsibilities that no one else can care for. It's because life is full, it's hard, it's demanding, it's unrelenting. It's because all of those things, that preparation, intention, focus, making wise arrangements and choices are all necessary to grow spiritually mature. Right? As we read this account, it's evident Solomon did not build the temple by accident. It was not something that he just fell into. And nor by accident do we begin to look more and more like Jesus. 
right, we see that Solomon worked according to a detailed plan. But also, he didn't complete the temple on his own. We're told that thousands upon thousands were involved. Right? This massive project took coordination. Right? It required lots of people to, to step up and sacrifice their time and their energy. Right? You and I, you and I need, we need this. Right? We need the fellowship of other believers. Right? You need accountability. Right? Someone needs your gifts. You need the gifts of other people. Right? To build the temple, Solomon needed additional labor. Right? He needed those who had skills that he didn't have. Right? And likewise, to be built up spiritually, we need other people laboring in our lives, laboring alongside of us. It's simply the work of discipleship. I love how Mark Dever puts it. He says, being a disciple, being a disciple of Jesus means orienting our lives toward others, just as Jesus did. It means laboring for the sake of others. And this love for others is at the heart of what we call discipling. So friends, give consideration to these two questions. Think, think about them at lunch. Right? Ask and answer. Right? What real plans, what real plans have you made for your soul? And second, who's there to help you execute this plan? Right? Nothing of any lasting significance gets built without thoughtful preparation. I can tell you those late night runs to Walmart to gather construction paper or whatever it was did not result in my best grade. Right? Anything of lasting significance gets built with thoughtful preparation and the coordinated work of other people. Right? But it's not only Solomon's approach that I think is spiritually Instructive. We also learn some things from the design and the structure of the temple itself. Because right? the first thing that we're told is about the, the exterior, the size of this house. It was about 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. And it wasn't unimpressive, especially if you compare it to the tabernacle that Israel had carried for now 480 years. The temple is about four times its size, but compared, but compared to other monuments and structures of its day, right, we know that the temple, the temple in Jerusalem was not the tallest, it wasn't the biggest, and it wasn't the most ornate. And so while the exterior wasn't unimportant, where was the real beauty? Right, the real beauty was on the inside. And the most beautiful part, the part given the most attention, the part that was full of the most ornate and costly details was the inner sanctuary. And I think that's somewhat surprising to us because the inner sanctuary was reserved for God. It was where only one time a year the high priest 
was able to enter. Right? The public, there were no public tours. The public never got to set foot there. And we might think, what a waste. I mean, what's the point of having nice things if your neighbors never get to see them? But God is teaching us that what's beautiful to him, what he sees most clearly, is the inner character, right? The inner person. So think about it. What, what, what do we know about Christ? We know quite a lot, but we know nothing of his physical appearance. But as one commentator points out, Jesus Christ is more beautiful than any other person. He is beautiful because of the perfection of his love and the costliness of his sacrifice. So sure, a church can have, a church can have a beautiful sanctuary. Right? There's nothing wrong with an appreciation for beauty because beautiful things, whether it is a sanctuary or it's music or some other form of art, they, they do bear witness to the character of God. But we remember that, that it's no physical beauty, no ornate or impressive structure can take the place of God's people dying to sin and growing in the virtues of Christ. And so how does God bring beauty into your life today? Right, he works quietly by the power of his spirit to kill sin and to clothe us with things like compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and above all, love. So friends, where, where have you tried to dress up the ugliness of sin in your life? I remember in college thinking that sitting in a chapel a few times a week would do it. Right? Are you using the physical, some outward show, to mask what really needs to be cleansed from your heart? Right? Dealing with sin in prayer. Right? Finding another Christian to confess it to, bringing it to the cross. That is how we gain a soul that's precious in God's sight, no matter what we look like on the outside. You know, we have two beautiful spaces, don't we? But what we look like on the inside is what we want to be known for. Right? As we love one another, as we show mercy, as we forgive each other's sins, as we work together in harmony and peace and unity, right? all of that is there to display the beauty of God. Right? Why does the church exist? That's its purpose. Like the inner sanctuary, we are devoted to God. Right? We are set apart to display the beauty of his holiness, of his love, of his oneness. Right? So there, there, there's much that we can, that we can learn about the, the details and the structure of the house. We notice in verse 7 that the, the house was built in, in complete silence. I think telling us that, that God often works in ways that the rest of the world will never pay attention to. 
Right? There's much to learn spiritually about how this house came together and what it looked like. But when we step back, we see, I think, a bigger point. The main point is this, is that God's desire, God's desire is to welcome his people back into paradise. You wonder, what are all those engravings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers about? They're there to recall the paradise that was lost with Adam and Eve's disobedience. And so if God is reestablishing his permanent dwelling among his people, if he's in a sense reintroducing his people to the garden, to paradise, what, what must happen? Well, what went wrong the first time? Right, for God to dwell among his people, what must be there aren't carefully cut stones, ornate carvings. What must be present is an obedience from the heart. Look again at verses 11 to 13. It's like God interrupts Solomon's building project to remind him what is essential, right? What will guarantee and secure his presence? And he says, concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. See, something unique is happening here. Because in a broad general sense, yes, God desires the obedience of everyone's heart. But there's a different arrangement happening here. You see, God is speaking one-on-one -on -one with Solomon. And the you in these verses is, sing is, is singular. Right? He's setting up this arrangement. You see, Solomon is kind of like a new Adam. See, Solomon can bring about the fullness of God's blessing with his obedience. You see, Solomon can secure life for the people under his reign if, if he can obey. Right? God is arranging this, this covenant. And really, it's a, it's a covenant of grace. And it's gracious because God promises to bless an entire nation if only one man keeps the law. And God is so gracious and kind and generous that he appoints a man who, we're told, is wiser than all others. Right? This was the son of the king. He had been tutored and brought up to know the law. Right? If, if Israel had their pick, if Israel had their pick of who was going to represent them, they would have said, Solomon is our guy. Right? He had all the advantages. And yet for all of his wisdom, and yet for all the advantages that he had, we know that Solomon, Solomon couldn't secure God's permanent presence among the people, that he sinned, that he strayed, that he didn't walk in the commandments perfectly. 
And so long after Solomon's death, after years of more and more disobedience from Israel's kings, this temple, this temple was destroyed in 586 BC. And God exiled his people from Jerusalem. In which direction do they go? They go east, just like Adam and Eve. They're exiled to the east, all the way to Babylon. You see, at the start of 1 Kings, the people were secure in the land. They were enjoying God's blessings, his presence. And by the end of 2 Kings, this nation that seemed to be in possession of God's blessings are now in a foreign land, feeling the reality of God's judgment against sin. And so imagine, imagine sitting in exile. Imagine dwelling in Babylon and hearing this account of the temple. Right? And being reminded of the beauty you once had as a nation. More importantly, being reminded of the paradise that you almost had. If only, if only your king could have kept the law. If only your king could have kept his heart pure. Right? And how many of us think similar things as we look back on our lives? If, if only... If only I hadn't wasted that time, right? If only I hadn't spoken that word, right? If only I could have kept better watch of my heart. You see what sin does? Sin continually keeps us from the life we dream of. It continues to steal from us, to rob us of a life with God. You see, all of us, in a sense, are like those exiles dwelling in Babylon because we aren't. We aren't in paradise. Right? Our world is fallen. It's broken by sin. And so as hard as we might try, we can't build paradise for ourselves. And we know that if God made the same condition with us as he did with Solomon, we'd be no better off. We'd be where we are today. And so if your obedience can't bring you into paradise, if your performance can't secure God's permanent presence in your life, what hope is there for getting out of Babylon and into paradise? You know, this passage devotes a lot of space, a lot of words to describing the inner sanctuary. Why is that? I think it's because the solution is going to come from there. But the solution is found in an inner sanctuary, right? More beautiful, holier than the one built by Solomon. You see, we're told in Hebrews that Christ, he entered into holy places not made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he entered into heaven itself, the true holies of holies, into the very presence of God, and he did so on our behalf. You see, the reason this inner sanctuary, this heavenly sanctuary is more beautiful and holier than the one built by Solomon is because here, 
the Son of God, our King, atone for our sins that bar us from dwelling in God's presence. You see, this inner sanctuary doesn't need any of the gold that Solomon's temple had because this temple is made beautiful by Christ's loving sacrifice on our behalf. And so when you look at this inner sanctuary, this heavenly holy of holies, you see, you aren't reminded of what you've lost or what your sin cost you. You are reminded of what Jesus gained for you by his blood, of what you can never lose. See, the end of the passage, this, the end of the passage in Hebrews goes on to say that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him waiting in exile for our king to return and to establish his home among us. So friends, the permanent presence of God in your life is through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Solomon's disobedience, it ensured the destruction of the temple. Right? Like Adam's sin his sin brought God's judgment on those that he represented. But the greater king, Jesus Christ, by his great act of obedience, by sacrificing himself in our place, he has secured the blessing. Right? He has opened the way for us to get out, to pass through the doors, and into paradise with God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as your people continue to wait in this world for you to come again and to make all things new, we need your grace and your love and your power to sustain our faith. Lord Jesus, would you work powerfully in our hearts to remind us of the hope we have in your redemption. In your name we pray, amen.